Salt Lab Radio is brought to you by Silver Sea Cruises. With more than a thousand destinations over seven continents, including exclusive culinary adventures on the all-new Silver Moon, Silver Sea travels deeper. Hey, it's Adam. We traveled to record this episode last fall before anybody had heard of COVID-19. As we remain at home, we're thinking of our friends all around the world. And in the spirit of future travels, we're excited to share these stories. Welcome to Salt Lab Radio. I'm Adam Sachs. Food and the culture surrounding it has been my beat for more than 20 years. I love to cook and I live to travel and eat. But what keeps me going isn't just chasing that next great meal. What I really love is following food to its source and meeting the people preserving culinary traditions, creating new ones, and teaching us all how to eat in more well-informed ways. On this episode, we'll visit Anna Roche, Matea Gravner, and Antonia Klugman, three innovators cooking and making wine along the border of Italy and Slovenia. Stay tuned to hear what grappling with tradition along that border means to them. From Anna's quest to bring honor to her ingredients, to the hurdles Matea's family faces, to the way Antonia draws influence from her complicated heritage. Plus, Trieste's most celebrated cookbook, ancient winemaking techniques, and the world's most surprising potato. This is Salt Lab Radio. I'm often asked um, if my cooking is Slovenian, and uh, I always answer that my cooking is not Slovenian. My cooking is extremely regional. The borders have always been moving, and, you know, along the borders, people have been moving even more. That's chef Anna Roche. Along with her husband, Walter Kramer, Anna owns and runs two restaurants in Slovenia's Socha Valley, Hisha Franco and Hisha Polanka. Hisha Franco is elegant, avant-garde, and serves a lengthy tasting menu. It's regarded as the best restaurant in Slovenia. Up the road, Hisha Polanka feels more like a pub, specializing in heartier traditional fare, like the frika we had for lunch. Frika is the local potato pancake, sharply flavored from an abundance of pork fat and cheese. I loved it, and I love the way Anna describes it. Frika is one of the most amazing uh, uh, dishes one can eat. There is frico in the Italian mountains, and the Austrian mountains has have their variety of frika as well. Originally, it was uh, prepared on the open fire in in a big pan with a lot of pork fat inside, where they were roasting slowly the potatoes and then finishing it up with the cheese. Then can you imagine this open fire, open fire smell, and then uh, the melting pork fat and the potato and the cheese. And honestly, I think that people would be having like a source of schnapps after it because it's it's a very heavy dish but it is prepared for people who are hardworking outside waking up with cows at four three four in the morning and then going to bed when the cows go to bed and they are doing the work outside all the time and what is beautiful is that frika today for young people in the Socha Valley because of uh, frika on the menu of polonka became became a substitute of pizza so young people say uh, let's go in Polonka to have a beer and then have a frika together. We make sure that tomorrow our children, our grandchildren will not forget it. We met up with Anna for two meals. The first, beer and frika. The second, a couple dozen courses at Hisha Franco. We're just a few miles from the northern Italian region of Friuli, Venezia, Giulia. 
Austria is about 30 minutes by car. Croatia is less than 100 miles away. When you cross the border, it's not that you're going into another reality. You actually remain in the same one. So if you look at my cooking, it is maybe sometimes even closer to the um, uh, hilly places in Friuli Venezia Giulia or in the southern Austria than maybe in a place in some other part of Slovenia. It's the idea of borders that brought me here in the first place. These lines, drawn and claimed on a map, can spark controversy, start wars, pull families apart. But what happens to a cuisine when the borders have continuously shifted? The land surrounding Anna's restaurants, which is stunning, had been contended for centuries. Ostrogoths, Lombards, Romans, Ottomans, Habsburgs, and Communists have all wanted control of the turquoise-colored rivers, the lush panorama stretching from peak to peak. Slovenia only became a democratic nation in 1991. Anna's lineage touches Austria, Romania, and Croatia. Her family lived in Trieste before moving here to the Socha Valley. Growing up in the 70s and 80s, she was a member of the Yugoslavian national alpine ski team and studied to be a diplomat. Sometimes she still sounds like one. When we talk about food, um, I must clearly say that the food uh, doesn't know the borders. There is no borders for the food. Last night at the restaurant, we had this amazing dish that uh, involved lamb and crab that was uh, wrapped in Swiss chard. I, I don't usually have lamb and crab together. It worked perfectly. It was almost, if you didn't know there was crab there, you might not pick it out. But in the same way that anchovy can pick up the flavors of, uh, enhance the flavors of lamb, it was really beautiful. How did, how did that dish come together? So it's a wrap uh, of lamb and crab meat. So it's a pulled lamb with a, with a crab and then it's all uh, um, folded in a leaf of uh, Swiss char. Um, and we serve together a, a small, very clear bowl of the lamb uh, broth that is made out of the other parts of the lamb. And inside you have the egg yolk, which is actually emptied and filled with uh, anchovy, anchovy milk. I honestly believe that there is always a symbiosis in the nature. If you observe things that are living together in the nature, you can actually imagine you can serve them together. We are very close uh, to the sea. Our mountains and meadows face the Gulf of Trieste. Uh, the sea breeze, um, we even have Buria, Bora, so the north wind um, is coming, uh, uh, it's reaching our mountains and uh, the air is saltier. It is changing the the minerality of the soil, uh, of the plants, and this is how the animals that are eating those plants are actually having a completely different flavor. It's almost sea flavor. So those lamps on a pasture are overlooking the lagoon where we are getting the crabs from. I mean, uh, you can actually count the fishing boats on, uh, on the sea. Um, so for me, um, that trip uh, from the meadow towards the sea, combining the crab and lamb, the actual flavor of the meat and of the fish, in this case the crab, is so similar that when I say to people, this is lamb and crab, they're like, are you nuts? This is never going to work. And when they eat it, they actually find the third fla flavor because lamb and crab together, they actually reproduce another, another flavor combination. And just to be clear, so this is not a traditional pairing. This is, it's not a Slovenian tradition to put lamb and crab together, but you're taking things that are uh, features of the landscape, features of, of the of the bounty of this area, 
and finding similarities and, like you say, symbiosis and making new dishes out of them. People always uh, misunderstand my words when I'm talking about my cooking. And I know a lot of colleagues of mine and a lot of journalists think that we actually are cooking very traditional cuisine, which is not so. Uh, when I'm talking about traditions, when I'm talking about the landscape and when I'm talking about the, the, um, uh, the season, I'm talking about products. And I'm talking the products that come from tradition, like the fermented cottages that is served on our menu together with the potato, which is baked in in the hay crust. The story of that dish is incredible. That that's something that I think a perfect example of. If you read the dish on paper, it doesn't sound super promising. A, p a potato wrapped in stuff. Uh, we are talking about reproducing an old-fashioned ingredient that no one is using anymore but I brought it into life uh, in a completely new form served with a smoked chocolate and chamomile pollen uh, that's something that never happened in a tradition uh, you know in a tradition in a mountain area people needed to feed themselves they didn't need to uh, they had no need for fine dining so what is going on in my kitchen is actually respecting tradition landscape and the season taking the products in their right time And then, you know, my mind is a little bit twisted, so <laughs> then I twist up the things. But I always create the stories. My food is all about storytelling. It's a similar idea to a salt-baked fish, creating a crust to lock in tenderness. In this case, Anna bakes a potato in a shell made from hay. When I cracked mine open, I peeled away the crust, and there was this incredibly earthy, rich, deeply fragrant thing inside that tasted more of a potato than just a regular potato. It really blew my mind. You know, I think dining in places like Isha Franco need to be conceptual. So I can serve you um, amazing caviar or foie gras, but you can uh, have that caviar and that foie gras in a prime role wherever around the world. Right. But I can still use the caviar and the foie gras just to spice up some of our very original ingredients. Potato for me has bigger value than caviar and foie gras. And the potato is chompa in original in our dialect. And scuta is about the fermented cottages that comes from old, old traditions of um, cheese making in the high mountains. They ferment it to preserve it and it's strong and spicy. That, that is why usually people were eating it with boiled potato without even peeling it. Now, when I wanted to recreate that dish, and that is a dish that still families have every day, almost every day, for dinner. My children are crazy about it. But you know, how do you reproduce a fermented cottage and boiled potato? So we were thinking in a very conceptual way, saying, where is the fermented cottage produced? It is produced in a high mountain. Where did I sleep as a child in a high mountain? I slept in a hay house. My first memories of sleeping on hay is actually in the meadows. When like, I was listening to the um, shepherds with my parents, I guess, drinking uh, wine and baking frika, and me and my sister on the upper floor sleeping on the hay were supposed to sleep. There was a smell of frika that actuating uh, you guys tasted yesterday. And uh, there was a sound of the shepherds and my parents, and uh, we could smell a fire because Frika was made of fire, but we were lying in a bed of hay. Mm -hmm. So that is my memory, which is so connected to the fermented cottages, because in the corner there's a big bowl where they were putting everyday fresh cottages inside, pressing the water out and letting it ferment.
So how can I explain to someone what that means? I'm bringing you to the high mountain and the smell is the one. Hey, we don't eat hay, but we smell hay. So this is why we actually super dehydrate the hay and it's a real hay. It's not a hay for rabbits. It's the grass that we cut. And then uh, we powder it and then we mix it with salt and um, the egg white and we create a crust. And uh, we actually fold the potato in that, wrap it completely. It's beautiful. It's um, like um, nori green. Mm -hmm. And then we let it dry for a few hours and then we bake it in the oven by making little holes in the potato before. So the hay actually penetrates into a potato. When you actually open the crust, their mind wakes up and makes them think they actually are in a high mountain, mm -hmm. listening to the shepherds and my parents baking frika, but they really are just smelling a potato that is baked in a hay crust. Oh, I think the beauty of that kind of dish is that it works if you know the story, if you hear the story from you, and it works just uh if you if you just eat it if you crack it open and you taste it maybe you've never slept in a in a you know a, a, on hay in a in a high mountain but something is telling you uh, through your senses that this is earthy and real and and, and different than a, a, a you know a regular potato baked in tin foil you and you mentioned you mentioned uh i think you made a great point when you mentioned caviar and, and foie gras that we have an idea of these things as luxuries, but real luxury, I think, is coming to a place and eating food that's really f from there and feeling transported by that, and then having the extra element of having the storytelling and having the luxury of sort of uh, being in the hands of a chef who can take you places through the food. You wouldn't believe how much even uh, my colleagues, chefs that read about me uh, sometimes think that using high mountain products must be very limiting and very boring. What I'm saying is uh, sometimes we should be a lot prouder about what we have around. Do not be ashamed to cook eel. Don't be ashamed to cook a trout. When I started cooking, when Italians were coming through the door, uh, they would often be asking me, so uh, is there any seafood on the menu? And I would say, well, no, but we have a trout. And they would say, but no one is interested in a trout. Mm -hmm. Today, the trout, like uh, at the, in spring, we had four different courses based on the trout, from the trout belly to the trout skin to the trout liver. And people usually say that they really have a better fish. So that is the evolution for me. I've been here uh, in, in your region only for about 24 hours, and I've been introduced to Slovenian wine, to cheeses from the mountain, to salamis made out of bear, to potatoes that taste like you know, the, the hay in the mountain. So it's going to be hard to say goodbye to some of these dishes. If you had to describe a few tastes of of this region to someone who has never been here, what are what are a few bites or a few just a few ingredients that really uh, speak to the the tastes and and the nature of this of this area? If I have to describe um, the food in this area in two words only, I would say sweet sour. Sweet sour is something that really defines us a lot. Uh, you find sweet sour 
in uh, Vienna, you find sweet sour in Trieste, you find sweet sour in my home. And sometimes when we serve, uh, let's say, game with sweet sour flavors, for Italians this is completely out of their mind because they say, how can I meet, eat meat with a sweet sour flavor? But for us, combining meat, for example, game with sour, sweet sour flavors is completely logical. And this is how we can finish up the meal with sweet, sour, savory flavors, uh, respecting the tradition and at the same time telling a story of our places. At the end of the meal at Hishafranco, Anna served me a dessert I'll never forget. It was based on a kind of traditional boiled dumpling, but rather than the typical filling of raisins and walnuts, this one was filled with apple and pork crackling. On the side, there were sweet dried plums and a creme brulee flavored with smoked pork. On top, Anna grated horseradish. Remember, this is dessert we're talking about. For me, this one dish really represents Anna's idea of a bold, borderless cuisine. She pushes the sweet and sour and savory tastes of her region to the extreme. Why should I cook always comfort food? Why wouldn't I risk? So risking in your life is the only way that you make something big. If you play it too comfortable, I honestly think you always remain in a comfort zone, but you'll never realize something really big in your life. Before we talk to Matea and Antonia, I want to tell you a little bit about SALT. SALT is an acronym for Sea and Land Taste. That's the name of Silver Sea's new immersive culinary program. I'm not just the voice of this podcast, I'm also SALT's director. SALT is all about connecting guests with the food and drink culture of the places they visit. With a new restaurant and bar focused on changing regional menus and our first ever SALT Lab, a dedicated space for engaging lectures and hands-on cooking lessons. There's also the all-new customized culinary shore excursions, where guests will meet chefs and producers like the ones we talked to on this show. Silver Sea is connecting guests to the tastes and traditions of the world like never before. SALT launches this summer on Silver Sea's newest ship, Silver Moon. Hope to see you aboard. That's what making wine sounds like at the Grovner Vineyard, where the legendary Jasko Grovner helped spark the natural wine movement. I'm in their underground amphora room. More on that in a minute. For now, just consider our location. We're on the Italian side of the border, about 35 miles from Hishafranco. I can see Slovenia from here. It's almost close enough to smell the dumplings. The family name Grovner is actually German. That's Matea Grovner. Jasko's oldest daughter, and a big part of the family business. Matea's role spans from storytelling to sales to welcoming guests like us. Uh, but at home we speak Slovene, so it's, uh, we are really a, a, a good mix of, uh, of people. The winery was established in 1901, and at the time we were part of the Austro-Hungarian Imperium. After the First War, the, uh, we became part of the Regno d'Italia, and after the Second War, the uh, border changed again. Part of our winery, of our vineyard, are on the Italian side, part on the Slovenian. For people, they are not so used to cross the border. We cross the border even many times a day with absolutely no matter. Uh, but for people, they are not so used. This often, often so- sounds quite strange or um, funny. 
It's the end of harvest, and Matea shows us around her family's operation. In the vineyard, she points to the towering cypress trees that help protect the vines from the famous Bora winds. The Bora is the same natural phenomena that Anna says gives her lamb its signature salinity as it whips the salt air from the sea up into the mountains. In the mid-90s, my father wasn't any more satisfied about the wines he was making because the wine wasn't expressing the taste of the, of the grape. The grape variety she's talking about? Ribola. And this was for us very strange because usually in, uh, in farming, the fruit taste should be the taste you have even in the final product. So he started thinking about what was wrong with the Ribolla wine production and he started thinking about fermenting Ribolla on the skins. Ribolla has a very important skin, it's a very funny wine, grape, mainly because the Ribolla grape is very crunchy. Not all the wine grapes are so interesting. Now let's get back to those amphora. Amphora are these giant clay pots imported from the nation of Georgia. They're buried in the ground to control temperature in a subterranean room that's cool and damp with a floor made of pebbles. Walking around, you have to sort of dodge all these open black holes, the mouths of the amphora, where the wine is fermenting. We watch workers stirring the grape skins with these big wooden oars, pushing them deeper and deeper into the vessels. They do this six times a day to promote skin contact. It's a slow process. Fermenting can take months or even a year. This is the oldest way to produce wine. Some people say it's uh, more than 5,000 years old. 2000, my father made it to to go, to visit Georgia. He went there because he wanted to see if there were still people able to make amphoras. At the time, there was no market for amphoras. He found some elderly farmers. They were still able to, to make amphoras. This is a very artisanal way to, to produce amphoras. It takes between two and half, three months to build each one. These are fragile vessels. Their walls are thin, only between three and five centimeters thick. The wine inside each amphora is practically touching the earth surrounding it. So my father found this amphora. He has been able to buy them. Uh, we organized the shipping. We, the first one was a real disaster because from 11 amphoras, nine arrived completely broken. So we went back and back. Uh, it took us five years to collect the 46 amphoras we use at, uh, in, in the winery right now. Like Anna, Matea Gravner is always thinking about how to balance acceptance and intervention. We learned that they are not good or bad vintages. Vintages, they haven't been made for us humans. We have to be able to deal with them. In every vintage, even the most difficult one, you can find a good part. I always say it's like having children. Everyone needs to have an education, but after the basic education, you should follow the um, the natural behave and in order to allow everyone to do it best in with his own possibilities. And this is with wine the, the same. Matea told me that part of working with different vintages and studying them closely is deciding when not to make wine at all. For the Grovners, sometimes the grapes are just not good enough. If you want to be even stricter, there is no reason to produce just average quality wines. If the grapes are not good enough, we don't make it. And once you start thinking this way, you, and you get really concentrated about quality, everything else becomes really not so important. We believe that everything you do 
has to be making in the right way in order to be important. It, there are no important jobs and less important or, or not so important jobs. Everything you do, if you do it in the proper way, in the best way you are able, become important. Anna, Walter, Yasko, Matea, they're all making extraordinary choices to slow things down. We all live always in a hurry, but there are things you can't hurry. Uh, you, you can start going to school earlier, but this doesn't mean you will be adult earlier. You can uh, you cannot hurry the nature. The nature has his own rules and you have to accept them. Uh, once you accept them, so once you stop fighting against things you can change, uh, the perspective of life becomes completely different. It seemed only right to leave Grobner with a drink and a toast. Rivio is a Slovene word, which means um, it's closer to the santé in French, but Rivio means to the life, and Rivoli uh, is even a toast to the, to the life, which a toast should be. It's a luxury, uh, but I think we should every single day remember that we have to toast to our, our own life, to, to preserve it and to make it better tomorrow. Živio. After enjoying the 2010 and 2011 vintages at Gravner, both nectar-like and the color of sherry, we drove 30 minutes to Colio Goreziano. It's in Italy, but to get there from Gravner, we crossed the border a few more times, which felt to me like a subtle thrill. In Colio, we were welcomed by chef Antonia Klugman at her Michelin-starred restaurant Largine Avenco. It's a modern, minimalist building, the color of sage. Antonia set out an unforgettable lunch. Bread fresh from the oven, five kinds of cheese from local producers, homemade sweet and savory jams, and lardo, pancetta, and prosciutto from just up the road. Antonia's dinner menu is far less rustic. Just like Anna, she plays with the idea of pairing sweet and savory together, like her gnocchi with red plums, turnips, and rose petals. And you're from Trieste. You grew up in Trieste. Yes, I come from Trieste. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Her family has Polish, Russian, and Southern Italian roots. Parts of her family hid from Nazis, others held fascist beliefs. Antonia says most Italians don't even understand what a melting pot Trieste really is. To understand her cooking, you need to understand where she comes from. A city that was the main port of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, a city that after World War II became the edge of the Western world, jolted by the presence of the Iron Curtain. A city that was occupied by American and British forces, a city to which the world was drawn and where outside influence remains vast. So maybe tell me a little bit about what, what does it mean to cook in this region, to cook as someone who grew up in Trieste, uh, who's Italian but comes from many different backgrounds, to cook this close to the border. How does that inform what you do? How does it inform what you grow, what kinds of dishes you make? Yes, well, uh, you know, uh, when I when I've bought this place, first of all, I wanted a place in the countryside and I want it to be beautiful, surrounded by beauty, because I think beauty is such a great, you know, origin for creativity. Then I've chosen this part of the Friuli 
region because it's quite similar culturally from my 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 city because uh, Trias was for 600 hundreds of years under the Austrian Empire and a lot of cultures were there as my family can represent perfectly. Where, where are the different parts of your family from? Yes, we are mixed. So my grandfather was Jewish and um, while he was, uh, you know, hiring from the Nazi in the Emilia Romagna, he met uh, uh, his wife, uh, so Ferrarese from Ferrara. The other part, uh, uh, my grandfather came from Puglia, so the south Far of Italy, south, yeah. and uh, my grandmother came, fr- came from Trieste, so really a mix. And is that typical of people in Trieste? Yes. Even now that their 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 family background is yes, a, a we, patchwork like that? Yes, we are lucky in in many ways because of the port, a lot of different cultures, as in Venice, reunited in a strange ways because family and the mix that you create naturally, mixing cultures in a family is the way, you know, that the layers can play in the most beautiful way. So Croatian, Serbian, Greece, uh, British. Really? Yes, British. What what do they bring? The tea, we're having having tea. (laughs) No, but even the chorus, you know. Antonia is talking about singing with an Anglican chorus as a kid. She didn't grow up religious, but still sang in church with her English kindergarten teacher. I used to go to with with some of my friends who were British uh, to their uh, chorus during the winter time, and they influenced me in some way with the lamb, with mm. the mint, and uh, the Christmas pie. And uh, <laughs> yes, they were amazing for me. And I drink a lot of tea with the milk. Okay. Yes. Yes, you Black, become quite Black British. Tea. Yes. Very proper. Um, so so. Cooking uh, in a way and thinking about food in a way that, that crosses borders comes naturally for you. It's not a, it's it's not a, a thought you bring to you know thinking about being near the border and you have to cook a certain way. It's just who you are. Yes, exactly. It's something natural, totally natural, and I'm really proud of that because usually in Italy, um, in some regions that are that are very very rich of ingredients and cultures and they are really rooted to their origins they don't have this mixed you know i have both because of my parents and right. so i'm so lucky you know it is i mean i think this is one thing at least for american uh travelers and diners that we're always told that um you know the, the food of italy is very regional and it's very you don't eat one thing in the south that you would eat in the north or it's fresh pasta in the north yeah. and dry pasta wherever but it's there's much more nuance to it when you come to a place like Trieste or, or this region where there are many more uh, influences other than just the specifics. Sort of yes, what's there. exactly. It must liberate you because you don't have to cook something that is is just what you 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 grew up with or your parents you know made for yes. you. I listen people when they talk about food. It's so interesting for me, and it's it really moves me in a way. Even watching movies about food, it it changed me, you know? Even if I see a fragment of a photo where a cook cooks something that I don't know, it changes me. I'm like, I'm like a sponge in my kitchen. And uh, really, the kitchens are a place for freedom, you know? No borders are in the kitchen. And this is my mantra.
Let's talk about some of the, um, we just had a lovely lunch where we had a little bit of uh, local ham and beautiful cheeses. And then afterwards you were showing me the herbs that came from the garden that mm -hmm. the, you and the chefs go and collect. Some of them wild, some of them planted. Uh, you're making um, really fascinating vinegars out of unusual uh, <laughs> ingredients. So you're, you're taking these things and applying your creativity to them and being inspired by them. Talk about it, some of the some of those things that, that mm -hmm. uh, inform your your cuisine. Yes, I think it's quite it's quite intense to uh, live in the countryside because as a cook you have a direct experience to ingredients in a way. So you have to listen to them to the season in a real way, you know, and in your personal way. So as I said to you, for example, you can perceive that uh, immediately looking the trees and the nature outside the restaurant that tomatoes, peaches and apricots, they are cousin. Mm. And applying the, the techniques that you know for sweetness uh, and for a sweet candy that, to tomatoes, it's quite natural if you observe them in nature. And this is a, a tomato jam or compote that you Yes, I, for example, I do jam by the tomatoes, but also I do, I do a lot of uh, mm, sweet preparation from them. Yes, preserving them in different ways. But, uh, you know, having so many uh, fruit trees, you have also uh, to wonder how you can uh, preserve them because they are so much, you know, uh, so many. And and you, ha you have to use your minds in different ways, making juices and vinegar was a way to, pr to, to use them, you know, not, not wasting the fruit. And so this year I started making vinegar from the tomatoes uh, during the season, uh, red tomatoes and yellow ones, but also from the persimmon, from the cherries, Amazing. from the figs, from whatever. <laughs> is this, and this is not traditional to the region. This is not no. a place of... Of no, persimmon uh, vinegars. This we, is, no, no, it's okay. all. It's all. <laughs> we, we usually make uh, vinegar, very, very good vinegar um, from the grapes because this is a vineyard zone. And so we, of course, make a lot of vinegar from that. And traditionally, we use the apples to make uh, the, um, yes, uh, the vinegar. It's... Uh, Yes, it's a new way to use fruit. <laughs> so is that, yeah, is that freedom for, for a chef to be able to apply traditional techniques, uh, you know, things that you know work and transform ingredients into something else that, that can sort of outlast the season and, and, yeah. and go beyond the season, but apply it to things you see around you in ways that haven't been done before. Yes, that is so interesting because it's nature... It's time more than energy. Yes, right? time, time, of course, that has a value, but... Uh, you don't do anything as a cook, <laughs> you know? You only put the, the ingredients together and nature right. alone, it does the magic. It makes the magic. Yeah, but it's like winemaking. It's, it's applying culture and knowledge and experience to nature and letting it do its magic with as little intervention as, yes. as possible. Who are the cooks in your family? Who are your role models in the kitchen? Well, uh, I had uh, I, I experienced those two branches of my family totally totally different in a way. We had this Austrian-Hungarian tradition from the Jewish family with uh, some uh, beautiful 
things from Emilia Romagna, so fresh pasta, uh, fritto misal italiana, and uh, typical center Italian tradition. And the other part, and so my my granny used to to cook yeah. in, in that family, and uh, mia nonna Marisa who gave me the, reci the recipes for my cakes for the breakfast here and my traditional, you know, triestini uh, be behavior in the kitchen are totally from that part of the family. And uh, the other, uh, I had this, my grandfather, Antonio, from the Puglia, and he was a great cook in my opinion, but he died when I was young, when I was 10. But I have so many memories from him, you know, the anchovy and the fish market. We, we used to take them home with the lit and eat them raw with a little bit of lemon and salt and olive oil. And he was such a great cook, really a great cook. And even Triglia alla Livornese, so fish cooked, uh, red mullet cooked with the fresh tomato sauce and a little bit of oregano on the top, and that's it, very good. And then his pizza, his... Um, I can remember the traditional use of cheese at the end of the meal with, uh, without, you know, no dessert at, mm. at his house, only cheese at the end of... Always a cheese course? Yes, always. Very proper. Yes. Um, so you have these influences. You had, uh, you saw great food or you were exposed at a, at a young age to, yes. to great food and you come from a place with all these overlapping uh, culinary uh, traditions. But your path to being a chef was not direct. You... You were planning on being something else. <laughs> yes, because uh, in my family, they are all medical doctors. Okay. And uh, it's totally normal <laughs> and proper to study at a university and uh, have a proper job in my family. <laughs> that being a chef was totally not uh, in the mood, you know? <laughs> not, not in the plan. <laughs> no, yeah. not in the plan. And I used to study to be to become a lawyer in my university in Milano when I had this strange phone call to my parents uh, separately because they are divorced. So one was in Milano and one was in Trieste. And I called them and I said to them, I'm so sorry, I really would like to be a cook. And they were like a little bit uh, afraid and frightened for me, you know. Was there silence on the other yeah, end of the silence, phone? Yeah, silence, a lot of silence. Judgmental <laughs> silence. <laughs> but uh, at the end, uh, they it was like 18, 19 uh, years ago. It was not, not so fashionable being a chef. And so my, my mother said to me this beautiful sentence. She said to me, you have to earn money in your life uh, and uh, there will be always... Uh, a place for a cook in the world. Uh, so she was really worried for me, you know, in a way. And uh, she never th thought about me as a creative chef, you know, fashion, uh, fashionable f chef. Uh, and during the years, she was, I think, surprised about uh, how my career went, you know, in a way. <laughs> I, I think I am a creative person. So, uh, um, and the law wasn't the good field for me but uh, at the end the power to change everything was uh, uh, how my life was going so 
Uh, I was really sad because uh, my boyfriend left me. Oh, no. Yes, because my parents get divorced, oh, and no. uh, I yes, it's, uh, it's and I was really good at the university because uh, I think I'm not so stupid, and I can, <laughs> I, I you know, I was really good. And uh, the the problem was that uh, I was really a, a little girl, even in my elementary school, really conscious about uh, really conscious about uh, how short is life you know really 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 conscious about that i'm really frightened about the dying the stuff about dying you know the end of everything (laughs) and uh, and so i i always push i always go really fast because of that and uh, in that occasion i thought wow i have to change everything because i want to be really happy in my life and do what I what I love, and what I loved was food. So I changed everything to work with food. We were talking about a book that had a profound influence on your cuisine. Yes, Maria Stelvio. Yes, so this who, is a... who was Maria Stelvio and. and Tell me about her book, what it, what it means to you. <laughs> yes, the Maria Stelvio during the 20s, at the end of the 20s in Trieste, she wrote this beautiful re- recipes book. Uh, I collect uh, the different edition that, and um, she couldn't sign the the book with her name, and uh, Maria Stelvio isn't her really real name. And uh, the interesting thing that she was uh, married. Uh, she married three times she had a beautiful and adventurous life and she collected all those recipes uh, uh, from Trieste uh, that were never published in a way in this way so um, in this book you can find recipes from uh, Mediterranean countries because uh, uh, Trieste was a port and uh, a lot of crusades uh, boats arrived there they built the, the boats in Trieste and so so many cooks professional cooks arrived there from all over the, the Europe and uh, she collected all these Im- amazing recipes with uh, really uh, in a modern way really modern way who was she writing for was she writing for other chefs or for home cooks for home cooks, okay. women, but uh, because of the quality of her work, this book became the you know the base for our uh, for the city culture. You know because of of uh, all those uh, in- incredible influences, even a family like mine could find recipes that were good for every member. You know, you ha- you could have in in her book you can find. Uh, um, Recipes from Puglia, from uh, the Eastern Europe, from the Serbian and Croatian and Balkanic uh, countries, uh, all in one book. And this is a book that was written in the 1920s and showcased and, and sort of celebrated the diversity of the city exactly. in that way. And it must have hit a note. I mean, if it was, if it came, out, if it had many editions, yes, this was something I have that spoke to the to the the people of Trieste. Yes, every family has um, at least one, at least one book 
from Maria Stelvio because the point is that uh, every generation gave a book for the next one, you okay. know. So I have the one from my my mother from the 70s, but I have also my first ed- the first edition because I'm a chef, of course, and I <laughs> bought it. <laughs> and is the is that patchwork or that that sort of um, diverse cuisine that uh, Maria Stelvio was writing about in the 20s is that the food of Trieste today? Um, in a way, yes. The, the, the amazing thing about the city is that uh, this layering process is totally natural. So that is how deep is uh, the culture in my city that is interesting, you know? Because it's not something that is, uh, no, it's not a modern fusion, you know? Right. Everything applied one on the other, but it's a layering process 600 years of layerings and what about the the sort of sweet sour influence of austria or the going north a little bit okay we really have a lot of fruit in our countryside big a lot of varieties but we have also um the sea and we have also the cows, the mm-hmm. pigs. So it's quite usual to put the fruit and the savory dish, in savory dish. And maybe fresh fruit, but also preserved fruit. And that's why I'm working so much in my cuisine with the, with the fruit in a strange way, you know, for the, <laughs> for the rest of Italy, maybe a strange way, but it, for our Austrian-Hungarian uh, influences, it's quite sense. in the mood, you know. So yeah, you say strange. Is it strange if if I'm from Rome and I I come to your restaurant? Is this a I'm not I don't know what the fruit is doing on the plate yeah. next to the fish or the pork? Yes, yes, it's totally original for uh, for a, a Romano. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, I I, d- I make those uh, beetroot gnocchi with uh, the plums jelly and. Uh, uh, the skins uh, uh, fried of the Jerusalem artichoke. And uh, I make this beetroot gnocchi because, of course, of my origins. Because in Trieste, we have this uh, gnocchi filled with fresh plums. Remember Anna's dumplings at Hisha Franco? This is Antonia's version. She's Italian, so it's gnocchi to her. Inside, you fill them with the plums or cherries in wow. the season. And you use this type of gnocchi as a contorno of uh, uh, meat, veal, for example, or you can eat them as a dessert with a little bit of sugar on the top and cinnamon, or you can use it with a little bit of parmesan on the top and butter. And as you see, you don't know if you are in the sweet world and savory world, it's, you know. You're in a delicious world that sounds amazing (laughs) and uh, in a way this is all for my happiness you know (laughs) we're all here for your happiness yes this is it what does it mean to cook border cuisine I think there is no definition no strict definition for that because it's really related to who who I am as a citizen of Trieste for me it's like a, a bridge it's not something that, it, that closes, but it's a bridge to something else. I really love spending time in this fascinating border region, eating and talking with Anna, Matea, and Antonia. Anna's food read like a Slovenian folktale, filled with surprising twists and real wisdom. Matea's thoughts on wine sounded like a lesson in how to live your life. 
and Antonia's personal and joyous cooking sheds light on a complex region. For more on Ana Roche, check out her excellent new book, Sun and Rain. If you can't make it to Larginea Avenco, you can follow Antonia's adventures and watch her dishes come together on Instagram, at Antonia Klugman, two ends. And keep an eye out for news from Grovner on their website, www.grovner.it. Thanks so much for joining us on Salt Lab Radio. Come back next time. We're going to Albania. Salt Lab Radio is produced for Silver Sea Cruises by Rob Corso, Casey Kahn, and Howie Kahn at Freetime Media. Episode music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Anna Roche, Matea Gravner, Antonio Klugman, Barbara Muckerman, Barbara Beefy, Elena Moriando, Victoria Klugman, Marco Kovac, Walter Kramer, Mansa Istinich, Josko Gravner, Vivian Matos, Sheila Donnelly, Evan Block, and Tom Camuso. I'm your host, Adam Sachs, and I've got a craving for dumplings. Salt Lab Radio is brought to you by Silver Sea Cruises. With more than a thousand destinations over seven continents, including exclusive culinary adventures on the all-new Silver Moon, Silver Sea travels deeper.